Welcome to the Tanya Acker Show. I'm Tanya Acker. Welcome to the show. A lot of people are having a really hard time right now. And that's why I wanted to invite Dr. Nzinga Harrison. Uh, She's the co-founder of Eleanor Health onto the show. I just wanted uh, someone who knows what the heck they're talking about to give all of us uh, practical strategies for getting through this. The tough time that we are in is hitting different people differently. Uh, Some people are struggling for basic necessities. Uh, Some people are doing just fine with the basic necessities, but they're having a really hard time uh, emotionally. Mental health issues are as important as any other. And right now, the anxiety and tension and uncertainty uh, that so many people are living with, it's something about which all of us could use a little advice and frankly, some strategies uh, for how to get through this as best we can. Here I am with Dr. Nzinga Harrison, co-founder of Eleanor Health. Please welcome to the program, Dr. Nzinga Harrison. She is the founder and chief medical officer at Eleanor Health. She's also the founder of Physicians for Criminal Justice Reform. She is an addiction specialist. And uh, there's a lot to talk to Dr. Harrison about uh, with right now. So thank you for being here, doctor. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much, Tanya. I do have to give my co-founder shine. So I'm co-founder of Eleanor Health and co-founder of Physicians for Criminal Justice Reform, reflecting that it takes a village. Thank you for doing that. And actually, that's a good segue to part of what I want to talk to you about right now, which is isolation. You know, I I think it's important right now that you just gave a shout out to the people who helped you build uh, the great projects, the businesses, uh, the organizations that you founded, because it does take a village. Right Mm -hmm. now, a lot of people are isolated from their villages. I just saw a statistic that I have to tell you, Dr. Harrison, it broke my heart. It said that 25% of young people considered suicide uh, last Mm. June. This is from the CDC. So how can we all better manage this growing bucket of anxiety that so many people are now having to live with? Yeah, one in four young people. And um, I saw a similar statistic for um, old adults, not older adults, but um, that was one in 11 seriously considered suicide in the last month. And so we are all out here struggling. I think that's the first point is like, we are all out here struggling. Part of what really, really feels devastating and unable to be overcome is when you feel like you're in it yourself. And then the stigma that we put around the concept of struggling, like you got to have it all together. You're a super mom, you're a strong black woman, you're a powerful king. And it's like, uh, we're humans and unprecedented is the underscored word of the year. I've been talking about this concept of the syndemic, which is like, we already had the addiction epidemic. Then the COVID pandemic came and ripped all of our routines and our sense of security. And then racism is an epidemic that has been around clearly way longer than either you or I has been alive. But the acuteness of all of the just racial injustice in our face right now, all three on top of each other, means we have to accept that 
we're struggling. And we're not the only ones struggling and create the acceptance for us to say that out loud and ask for help and support. I think what you said about how we're all struggling is really an important thing to underscore because that looks different for different people. Mm -hmm. You know, there are a group of people in America right now, frankly, more than I think I've ever seen in my lifetime, who are struggling in a real material sense. They are not sure that they are still going to be housed Mm -hmm. when various eviction uh, moratoria elapse. They are not sure that there's going to be food. So there's a real material struggle um, that's going on. There's also a psychological struggle. You know, you may have food in the refrigerator. You may not be on the verge of homelessness. Does that even right now come with a little bit of guilt so that people who are feeling sad and isolated, but, you know, not sick, not hungry, do you think that some of those folks are feeling uh, less able or less willing to be open because, frankly, they're better off than a hell of a lot of other people right now? Yeah, and I think that's a common, like, cultural dynamic we have, um, at least here in the United States, which is important, which is be grateful for what you have and you have something more than another person has. Another person is struggling more than you. Both can be true, right? You can have more than another person has and you can be grateful for what you have and you can still be struggling. So one of the ways our brains give us a sense of security and safety is through routine. And another way, just neurobiologically, routine creates a sense of safety and security. Physical touch creates a sense of safety and security. These are just like natural neurobiological um, mechanisms that we have. And so right now, all of our sense of security has been disrupted. We have a virus on the loose. We don't know when we're getting our routines back. We don't know when we get to see the people we love and hug them and, you know, give them a kiss without being afraid. And so, yes, we have more. Thankfully, gratefully, that does not remove the fact that we still have serious lack of safety, emotional safety and psychological safety. So how do we start or how can we better manage that uh, lack of safety? Because right along with these increased numbers uh, who've considered suicide, there are also increased numbers of people uh, who are abusing substances, increased substance use amongst young people and others. There's a part, like if you spend a lot of time on social media, a lot of people are joking about it, right? You know, Mm -hmm. how like cocktail hours started much earlier in the day than it used to. People are looking for something to break up the day. They are looking for ways to relax. They are looking for ways to impart some sort of festivity and joy. Uh, Having a glass of wine is something that a lot of us do to do that. How can we make sure we're being careful that that glass of wine to break up the boredom and anxiety of the day doesn't become a dangerous, harmful routine. What are the things people should look out for? Yeah. So to put a statistic on that, alcohol sales went up 55% in the first two months of the pandemic. And um, the same study that I alluded to earlier that said one in 11 people had seriously thought of suicide in the last month also said one in four people is binge drinking. In the previous week, 
And so part of it is just knowing even what that is. Like you said, drinking to break up the day. So our day used to be broken up by a commute. It used to be broken up by maybe your kids' extracurricular activities. It used to be broken up. And now it's just sitting here. It used to be your if you invited your work into your home, but now you're working from home and like your office is your bedroom and your kitchen and it's like always there. And so part of it is if you're drinking while you're working, this is a red flag. Once upon a time, I was doing this podcast out in the studio somewhere else. And then I would call a friend on the way home. You know, I would have said to my producer, try to like connect me with Dr. Harrison. Like maybe there's some ways she and I can have a drink later on uh, in a few weeks and like meet up at, you know, six or a normal time for drinking. (laughs) Um, But now it's like I'm in downstairs, I'm Mm -hmm. in my house, I'm talking to you in your house, our our worlds are smaller. Mm -hmm. So what's your advice? Like, because we can joke about it, but there has become a reliance on alcohol and on substances that uh, can be dangerous for a lot of people. Absolutely. So the the very tangible, concrete tool I like to give people um, is called the cage. And... The first thing I say to people is, if you're asking the question, is this a problem? The answer is yes. Mm. And part of our difficulty in this country is that we don't consider it a problem until you get a DUI or until you get in trouble at work or until your spouse is about to leave your relationship, even though it became a mild problem way earlier on. And so we want to try to start identifying that as soon as possible. So if you're asking the question, the answer is yes, just get some support, get a therapist, talk to somebody about it. Like, don't let the stigma stop you from getting help, because what it is, is a signal that you need something. It's a signal that your anxiety is too high. Your depression is too high. Your uncertainty is too high. Your stress is too high. Your sleep is not good. It's a signal. So just think of it like that. I'm not asking people to be like, I accept that I am an alcoholic. I'm not asking for that. C, this is the cage. C, have you ever thought to yourself, I might need to cut back, whatever it is. A, have you ever felt annoyed when somebody else mentioned it to you? Man, you sure look like you're drinking every time we get on this Zoom call. G, have you ever felt guilty? Like, I know I shouldn't be drinking right now. Or I know I shouldn't be blazing up this right now, but I'm going to blaze it up. And then E is eye opener. So this this scale was originally developed for alcohol. And it was like, do you wake up in withdrawal and needing to take a drink? But you can use it for other substances also. It's just like, do you wake up in the morning anticipating when you will be able to? Right? Look at my calendar. 4.30 p.m. I'm getting that drink. If you answer one, out of those four questions, C-A-G-E, cutback, annoyed, guilty, or eye-opener, it is 77% chance that you meet diagnostic criteria for an alcohol use disorder. So even if you're in the 23% who don't, it's a signal that you're walking in that direction. So we should just be, there's so much stigma to say, I'm worried about my drinking, but if we could just say that and intervene as early as possible, we could save ourselves a lot of difficulty. Well, and I think now when you talk about uh, your CAGE criteria 
And when you talk about the other triggers, are you sleeping uh, not enough? Are you, do you have anxiety? I mean, frankly, I'm just going to be candid. I don't know anyone who over the past, now it's almost been a year of the shutdown. I mean, we're on 10 months. Right. I don't know anyone who hasn't ticked one of those boxes. Mm -hmm. And unless you're someone who's already a teetotaler, I don't know anyone who hasn't said, whoa, you know, like over the holidays, uh, me and one of my close girlfriends, we were like, you know what, let's make sure that when we're getting together for an outdoor event or having a Zoom happy hour, sometimes we can have tea uh-huh. uh, because there is such a reliance on alcohol, I think, That's to right. uh, just try to make you feel like something else is going on than what seems to be a really bleak circumstance. Do you drink at all socially, casually? Yeah. Yes, uh, and yes. How do you modulate? Like, have there ever been times when you're like, you know what, I know better than myself to then, you know, let's just say it's January 6th and you're watching the Capitol be overrun by a mob. <laughs> let's just say you were watching uh, a mob overrun the Capitol and you're like, wow, that mob, that mob looked like me and my kids. That mob would have been taken mm-hmm. down a long time ago. Massacre. So you're watching and thinking all these things. Uh, you're like, you know what, let me just have a sip and try to take it down. Does that ever happen? Do you find yourself in those moments? Yeah. So, um, my biology protects me against using alcohol in that way, because like one drink and your girl is asleep. So (laughs) it is not alcohol for me, but I will tell you what it is, is macaroni and cheese and dessert. (laughs) So I'm not even kidding, Tanya. Last Friday, after work, I went on Uber Eats, and there is a restaurant. I had never heard of it before, but I, you know, usually like type in your restaurant name. I typed in dessert, <laughs> and I found a, re- a restaurant that only sells fair food. It, it was called like Food from the Fair or something like that. And I ordered $80, and it was funnel cakes and ice cream sundae. And I can't even remember whatever other mess I ordered. And then I went to a different restaurant and I typed in macaroni and cheese and then I ordered macaroni and cheese. It's the same phenomenon. So the way a lot of people are using alcohol in those moments, what I use is carbohydrates and sugar. But it's the same thing, which is taking the edge off and just feeling like, like I put on Facebook, I have angst. I can't even put my finger on it but I have angst and I just want to crawl in the bed and eat macaroni and cheese and dessert and just lay there. It's the same phenomenon as alcohol. The same phenomenon. We all have, your point is that people have different crutches. Uh, For some people it's food, for some people it's alcohol, for another Mm -hmm. it might be uh, some other sort of substance, uh, drugs or some other substance. But, you know, given that we have these different crutches, there are different stigmas attached to these different crutches. So, which also I think speaks to the larger issue about how we stigmatize different addictions and how we stigmatize different communities um, who have different sorts of addictions. So no doubt, uh, I think that ours is a society that can be hostile and unfriendly um, to people whose body types are larger than the norm. Absolutely. But we don't treat people who have an extra Twinkie the way we do people who have two extra martinis. Mm. And we don't treat people who have two extra martinis 
the way we treat people who maybe have a crack or mm -hmm. meth addiction. Mm -hmm. You know, for people who are struggling with one of those more stigmatized mm -hmm. addictions, what's your recommendation for trying to get help? Because sometimes people are just embarrassed. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you really put your finger on it. That story I just told about ordering $80 worth of um, funnel cakes. Nobody will judge me for it because I'm thin. And I'm thin just because of biology, right? Like just DNA that my parents gave me. If I were morbidly obese, then people would have been disgusted by that story. And so very much to your point, the stigma falls differently. Stigma falls differently on Black people. Stigma falls differently on anybody that's falling outside of rich, white, cisgendered, heterosexual male, which is the most privileged identity in this country. And so my advice is find a place that will be safe. And so on the podcast in recovery, this is our thesis. Every single one of us, yes, knows what it's like to have some behavior that we would be doing differently, but for some reason we can't every single one of us. And so the stigma of you're different because you developed an addiction is false. Every single one of us gets that. At Eleanor Health, we're like, we accept you for who you are. If you look at our reviews, the most common comment is like, I didn't feel judged because we put so much judgment on substance use disorders. And so it is, when I tell people, go to healthinherhue.com, which connects Black women to healthcare providers. Read the profile. You can read in that profile if you're going to be welcome, right? Go to psychologytoday.com. Read the profile. You can read if that person says addiction is a choice, and if you can just make better choices, your life would be better. Don't go there. You can read if it says we all struggle at times and if we have compassion and connection and people who can hold us up, I'll help guide you through those times so you can get stronger yourself. Go there. That's a safe place, right? So preferentially do the work. Everybody in your life is not safe. Everybody at work is not safe. Everybody in healthcare is not safe. Seek out a safe place and take the risk of asking for help. You mentioned your podcast, uh, In Recovery, and uh, one, everybody, you should listen to Dr. Harrison's podcast, In Recovery. There is an episode uh, that you did where you describe racism as an mm. addiction. And in the intro to that uh, episode, uh, you talk about a lot of your identities. Uh, you're a black woman, you're a wife to a black man, you are the mother to black children. And one of the things you said about your kids was that they're now at that age where uh, they're no longer seen as cute, mm -hmm. but they are seen as threatening. And one statistic that everybody should be aware of is that Black children, African-American children, uh, boys and girls, are typically seen as older than their white counterparts. Mm -hmm. Another thing I throw out is that Black people generally are seen as more psychologically unidimensional mm -hmm. than other people. Black women are always strong. We're never sad. The anger is never about being uncertain, insecure, overwhelmed. Right. Other people get all of these other dimensions to their anger and their mood and their expression. We're just strong, angry, mad, yeah. this. So it's kind of a two-part question I have. 
how do you make people more aware, I think, of the um, of the boxes that they're imposing mm-hmm. on other people? Like when you talk about racism as an addiction, is there some part of that addiction that uh, makes people more inclined to kind of deny Black folks their full humanity and the full panoply of emotional expression, uh, if that makes sense to you? Oh, it makes perfect sense. And so when I talk about racism as an addiction, it's using the thesis of addiction that we use on the podcast, which is continuing to do something even though the negative consequences outweigh the benefits. So as humans, benefits reinforce our behaviors. If there's something that brings us no benefit, we're not going to do it again, right? Like we're just biologically wired like, oh, okay, well, that was useless. No need to spend time and energy doing that. What is important on the other side of that coin is addiction is continued behavior despite the negative consequences outweighing the benefits, but there are still benefits. And so in that racism episode, the question that I challenge America with We see the negative consequences of racism. Black people are dying at two and a half times the rates of COVID. Infant mortality and maternal mortality rates are three to five times in Black populations. Socioeconomic disparity, health disparities, um, educational disparities, criminal justice overwhelmingly, we're the people in prison. Like you name it, the negative consequence getting killed on TV by the police and having our murders be like murder porn on the news and the trauma that that brings us, the negative consequences are evident. And so the challenge is what are the benefits? Who is benefiting? And I think for people who don't want to be benefiting from racism, but who are, it can be very difficult to look that in the eye. And so when you talk about the boxes that we get put in and the inability to experience us multidimensionally, some of that is the privilege of not having to. When you're in the majority group or in the privileged group, you don't have to understand what it's like, right? So I always talk about being tall and thin with a whole lot of hair, all of things which are coveted in this society and able-bodied with all four you know, of my limbs. I don't know what it's like to have a prosthetic limb because I don't I have the privilege of not having to know. I don't know what it's like to walk down the street and people are judging me for eating a cheeseburger because I'm overweight because I have the privilege of not having to know that. I don't want to be part of the group that oppresses and marginalizes those people, but I have to be able to accept that I have that privilege. And I think for white folks and other non-Black people, that can be very difficult to say, even though I don't want this privilege, I have this privilege and that's one of the benefits of racism. I was having a conversation the other day and we stumbled on, like, I don't even know, we were supposed to be talking about investments and somehow we were talking about racism. I think it was the day of the siege. And uh, we stumbled on the greatest privilege is the benefit of the doubt. Mm. It's what we don't get. As Black women, we look angry because we don't have the benefit of the doubt that maybe we're hurt. That Black man looks like a criminal because we don't have the benefit of the doubt that maybe he's up to something else other than criminality. And so, I don't know, I'm rambling. Not at all. You're not rambling at all. And I must underscore what you said 
that the biggest privilege of all is the privilege of being given the benefit of the doubt. You know, we have seen so much in this past year uh, locked up in our houses <laughs> or on lockdown, I should say. Everybody's got a cell phone. So we've been able to see people, uh, you know, harassed for bird watching. We've been able to see people killed in the middle of the street. I mean, mm-hmm. We've seen this. But what a lot of people sometimes forget is that these are not a new stories. I mean, Trayvon Martin was only killed, that was just a few years ago. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when you consider his story, here was a kid minding his business, walking down the street, accosted and killed by somebody without a badge. So if I'm a young person, if I'm a young black man, and I think a lot of this, um, you know, there are different stereotypes and there's different baggage that people put on young black women, but it's baggage. You know, just the idea that we spent so much time debating, well, you know, what was Trayvon using? Like, what was this? What was that? Whereas if you're not a black person, the presumption is people don't get to get in your business. That's right. If you're a young black kid, uh, the presumption is Joe Schmo down the street may be packing And he feels like he has the right, badge Mm -hmm. or not, to get in your business. Mm -hmm. That's a lot of anxiety. Um, I'm not a mom. What do you say to your young children? Because, you know, you want your sons to grow up owning the world because Mm -hmm. that feeling like they can own the world because that's how they do better. Mm -hmm. How can they manage that, having that kind of confidence when, again, some badgeless guy with a gun may take it upon himself to get in their business and put them on defense. We're not even talking about police officers now. Right. I mean, how do you manage that as a professional, as a black woman and as a mother? What's the story that you tell? It's so hard. So my boys are 14 and 15 now. So to the comment you made earlier that young black kids appear as scary adults earlier, that age that that happens is eight eight years old. And it goes back to the benefit of the doubt. Trayvon Martin was a child. And if he had been a white child walking down that street, he would have been given the benefit of the doubt by that bad man. And so when I'm having that conversation with my kids, it's the same. One, I want to keep it real with them. I cannot raise my kids up in fear. Um, This is part of the reason we live in a neighborhood that's 99% Black so that yes, they can walk to the lake without me having to worry about them because the police officers in our area are overwhelmingly black. The neighbors are black. And so my kids can walk down the street in my neighborhood and get the benefit of the doubt. We just have to have a conversation real with them and say like, you have to live your life, but these are the risks that are out there. So, and and my friends, even though we live in a 99% majority Black area, my kids went to a school for elementary and middle school that was very diverse. There was no majority Montessori school. And it really infused in them kind of like this sense of self and owning the world and conquering the world and being curious. But very early on, you have to have those conversations like, I know your friend can do this. You also can do this, run around the neighborhood and play cops and robbers with, you know, toys that look like guns. But here's the increased level of danger that that represents for you, purely because you're black and a boy. And you don't want to, it feels like stealing your kid's innocence. 
and it feels like painting a scary world for them, but you really just have to do it in a way that says, and so we're going to continue to live our lives, but we're going to live our lives understanding this risk that exists to us. So your kids uh, had the great benefit that um, many children don't when you mention their educational background mm-hmm. and the schooling and the, uh, the diverse environment to which they were exposed, which is going to allow for greater comfort uh, as mm-hmm. they move and traverse in the larger world. A lot of young Black kids aren't having that. Right. Um, they don't get that experience. And what they need... Uh, what we all need to hear from you is what's your advice to them? Because just like there are a bunch of folks who are willing to see you as a criminal, who are going to call the police on you before they ask you your name or how you're doing, or do you need anything stranded on the side of the road? If young black kids grow up with that sensibility toward white people generally, Mm -hmm. it's going to be harder to maneuver in the world. What's your advice for learning how to strike a balance? Because at some point, you know, I mean, if you look at a lot of the spaces in which, I mean, I'll just use myself as an example. A lot of the professional spaces in which I move are not black spaces. Sure. So if you are coming from an environment where you are regularly on edge, and then as you move through life, you end up in one of these largely non-black spaces, how can you better kind of reconcile all of these competing messages that you've been getting? I mean, I don't have all the answers. It's such a difficult question. I think the first is that um, we really want to, for Black kids, especially for all of our kids, be from the very beginning as much as possible, letting them know that you're not in a box. Like there is more. There is always more, always be looking for more. So like my father was is a Vietnam vet and he was commander of the Black Panther militia when we were growing up in Indianapolis, Indiana. And he would say, there's always a way out. You just have to keep looking. And it's like the same, I was reading a Martin Luther King quote just now that says, if you can't run, walk. If you can't walk, crawl. If you can't crawl, just keep moving forward. Whatever you do, just keep moving forward. And the more we can instill that in our kids, no matter what environment they're growing up in, I think this is the biggest handcuffs that kids who are growing up without this message have. It's like, there's only one way to money. There's only one way to success. There's only one way. And a lot of times those ways are not even the ways. It's like, no, there is more than you could ever imagine. Keep looking. Take the risk, keep looking, take the risk, keep looking. When you move out of those majority black spaces that you've grown up in and you find yourself in majority white spaces, you will feel out of place. You're not. People will make you try to make you feel out of place. You're not. You may have to surround yourself with people who can remind you there are more possibilities than you could ever see. Just keep looking. And that's that's what I've been trying to instill in my kids. It's like, if anybody ever tells you you're in a box, there's always a way out. Just keep looking. And there are also examples, frankly, of people who have broken out of boxes, created new spaces. Uh, you yourself are one. I mean, I am talking to a Black woman who's a physician who co-founded a practice, uh, who started a podcast where you've really been able to elevate 
your voice and your message, I think, to everyone's benefit. So before we go, people are in crisis and a lot of people need help. They are lonely and they need routine. Can you give us just a few practical tips, like things that people can do uh, while we are living in this period of uncertainty, just to try to help provide some order and balance to the day? How can we just help make ourselves feel better just a little bit some of the time? Yeah, definitely. So I always drop this into the magic formula, which is bio, psycho, social, cultural, political. So biologically, you have to make sure, like, don't follow the Dr. Harrison funnel cake and macaroni and cheese diet. Like, you have to be eating right. Your body needs it right now. When we are under stress, more than ever, we need to be eating and sleeping. Psychologically, get support. This is more than any of us can bear alone. So get professional support. Talk to your friends about it, yes, but get a therapist, drop into a support group, okay? So eleanorhealth.com, we have free online support groups, no commitment, just come get support. Like you scored one out of four on that KJ, just drop in. We have specific groups for um, BIPOC folks. We have specific groups for LGBTQ plus folks. We have groups for people who are using, drinking, whatever, people who are not, people who are worried about their loved ones. Like, just go on the website, drop into a group, no commitments, get some support. Number three, socially, culturally, politically. This is a time of opportunity because there's been this collective awakening to the experiences that we've been having, and there are a lot of people who want to help. So moderate the emotional valence of the news and content that you're taking in. Because you can take in all the fear, like all fear all day, all night. You're going to carry that into your sleep. You're not going to sleep. You're going to carry that into your day. You're going to be stressed out. Moderate. Find good content and supplement the fear. And then finally, go outside. Go outside every single day. We biologically need outside. Be outside, get sleep, eat better. I, we are all going to get through this. We will. Dr. Nzinga Harrison, Eleanor Health, we are going to put the link up. The link is up so people can uh, use you as a resource. Just by the way, side note, what my macaroni and cheese is, is old black and white movies or TV shows, mm. but like none with like any racist elements, like none of that. But like, Perry Mason, late at night, mm -hmm. Alfred Hitchcock, late at mm -hmm. night, like something where I feel like I, something where I know what's going to happen at the end. And like the good guys Certainty. are going to win. Certainty, yeah. Certainty like good guys win, yes. good people win, bad people lose. Like yes. that's what I'm looking for right now. Dr. Harrison, oh, you're such a treat. Really, thank you oh, for being thank here. You. Thank you for the resource you are. Thank you for your voice. Eleanor Health and host of In Recovery Podcast. Everybody listen to Dr. Harrison. Uh, we really need your voice uh, right now as much as we ever have. Thank, thank you, you so, so much. much for being here. Thank you. The Tanya Acker Show is written and executive produced by me. Sam Fergoso is my producer. Andre Lynn is my editor. Cole Mitchell is my composer. Sydney Freeman is my production assistant. And my show dog is Maximus Justice, also known as Max. If you like us, 
please go on to iTunes and leave a five-star review. Maybe I'll even have the chance to read it on the air. I will give you my hugest and most profuse thanks if you do. Thanks for listening, everybody. 